Welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez, and I'm happy to report that right now you can order my book. That's right. I wrote a book. It's called That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore on the Death and Rebirth of Comedy. Follow the link in the description or head over to Amazon and search for Lou Perez. That joke isn't funny anymore. If you want other options on how you can buy my book, please sign up for my newsletter at theluperez.com. You could also join my community at theluperez.locals.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you could leave a five-star review, that would be amazing. Whether you're a long-time listener or first-time, five-star reviews are lovely. If you're looking for other ways you can support me, you could do so by supporting my sponsors. If you're into CBD products, please check out PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Use promo code Lou to get 25% off purchases over $75. And if you like cold brew, check out Black Organic Cold Brew at www.blvckbrew.com and use promo code Lou for free shipping. All right, let's go. I'm very excited to have my next guest on. Uh, he is a journalist. He is an author. He has a new book out called Eurotrash. Um, his name is David Harsanyi. Uh, David, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, before we started recording, I uh, uh, let David know that uh, I started following his work over at The Federalist and then reading his writing uh, occasionally in Reason Magazine. And now he's at uh, National Review for a little while. And uh, he's one of my go-to reads. Uh, he's, uh, he's also pretty good on Twitter, too. So if uh, anybody out there isn't interested in reading, you know, 800 words of his at a time, you can get, you know, what's it, 140 characters or, or whatnot. Um, All my good stuff I save for Twitter. There we go. Uh, yeah. Well, one thing, I'm, I'm kind of amazed that uh, we're even doing this because you had a piece out recently in National Review talking about how you have something like 95,000 unread uh, emails in your inbox. And I'm just wondering how the hell did I slither uh, and get <laughs> and manage to get, get to you? So how does that happen, man? How, did, how do you get 95,000? I don't know. I... I, I, I... I sign up for a lot of the sub stacks and a lot of the newsletters. Um, and I think somehow that like other people get their names on my emails through that. Maybe I'm not exactly sure people sell my e email. Yeah, I don't know. It just kind of happened. And the funny thing is I spend like an hour sometimes, you know, during the week, just going through all of them and like mass deleting and it gets me nowhere. So I may just start a new, uh, another new email account and just, you know, uh, start fresh year zero years digital yeah. zero. Yeah. Have you ever, um, I've, I've gotten my inbox down to zero on multiple, multiple occasions. And it's, it's an amazing feeling. It, it, it's almost, it's, <laughs> I, I'm not much for meditation or, you know, Zen or anything like that, but getting, you know, zero emails in your inbox is, is quite something. I've never had that feeling. Maybe when I had my like, um, AOL account or, you know, whatever, Net, uh, Netscape account or something, I, I was at zero, but since then, no. Yeah. Never. I, uh, <laughs> I, um, with, with everything uh, going on, there's a lot of stuff that I want to, you know, uh, throw at you and, and see what you have to say about it. Um, I guess, uh, one of the things that sort of captured the imagination is uh everything that's happening with joe rogan and and spotify and i know you you've had some uh some words about that i actually um i wrote a piece for the spectator uh spectator world that came out today uh basically saying that we are spending way too much time talking about joe rogan and joe rogan is spending way too much time apologizing and uh I'm, i happen to be uh I'm, i've been a fan of joe rogan's for i guess over a decade and uh, I'm, I am not liking the attention uh, that he's uh, that he's getting in these uh, in these times. But, you know, where are you on that? Are you thinking? Well, I mean, I don't listen to a ton of podcasts, frankly, um, but I do like them when I do. Right. So I, I'm a big fan of the long form conversation. I like to participate in that more than I do going on, you know, TV and having, uh, you know, 30 seconds to say something. Um, so for me, this issue is more about the bigger, I think, the bigger topic of uh, free expression and censorship. And now people jump down my throat and say, you know, if if Spotify throws Joe Rogan off, it's not government censorship. And I, I agree. I think that if Spotify wants to get rid of them, they should be able to. But I think that people forget that the 
the reason we take the First Amendment seriously, I think, is that we have a, a, a culture that uh, protects free expression in general. I think if you don't have that kind of culture, if you don't uh, protect those ideals, even outside of any kind of legal sense, then you're going to lose them. So for me, Joe Rogan's just big part of this big uh, topic, you know, where I think that uh, the left, modern left, and of course, there are people on the right as well. But I think in general, the press journalists on the modern left in the modern left have taken authoritarian views on speech that and using the same excuses that have always been used for censorship, safety, violence, you know, words are violence, things like that. I think it's dangerous. And I think it's becoming more and more popular. And I worry about it. And Rogan's just one sort of instance in, in a long trajectory of this kind of thing. Yeah, it, it's interesting when I hear the when I see the people who bring up, you know, that, well, it's a private company, because oftentimes they're the same people who are like, you know, bake the cake. You know, if you're a, a Christian baker and someone wants you to make one, uh, make one for a gay wedding, bake the cake. Um, but, you know, something if, if you just like pull back and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a I'm a libertarian. So I, I understand the difference between government and and uh, and private ownership of means of production, et cetera. But it, I, I wish people would sort of take a minute and say, aren't you a little worried when private enterprises start censoring the people the government wants them to censor? You know, when yeah. you have Jen, Jen uh, Saski, you know, coming up and saying that Spotify should do more, you know, it's like, I, I, I get very, very uh, nervous about that. Yeah, no, I, that's the that's a great point. I was going to make it. I think if you have giant corporations that are rent seeking, that rely on regulations to hold their firm, gr you know, grip on on their position, and then the the people who give them that power say, "Man, it'd be great if you got rid of these people," or you are. I think Biden said something like, "You're killing people by allowing this disinformation or misinformation," and then essentially they're just working in tandem. And that's I'm not saying they're Nazis or anything, but that's fascisty, right? I mean, that's like how fascism works, and. You can't have big companies and government teaming up to dictate speech in that way. Then, you know, I'm also very, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a libertarian anymore, but I have very libertarian instincts. And I think that when, you know, you have to say that corporations can do things that are wrong as well and undermine, uh, you know, freedoms, obviously. And uh, if they're going to do that, then perhaps they don't deserve any of the protections that they're having. You know, if they're just going to listen to government, uh, tell them, because then they're essentially just part of the government. More than that, I think, you know, just because someone's a libertarian, I've had this problem for a long time, even when I was writing for Reason and things like that, where if you're a libertarian, somehow the kind of D.C. area libertarian gets mad that you have any sort of judgmental views about anything, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I believe government should stay out of people's business. That doesn't mean I think that their business is always the right thing or good, right? So I can have yeah. an opinion on how people act. I can be social conservative and a libertarian. I just don't want government involved. So I, I think that those are distinctions people sometimes forget to make. Yeah, I think uh, uh, if I went back, you know, maybe like, you know, 10 years ago, I would be um, a lot more in the camp of, you know, clear line of, of, of separation. But then when you start thinking about a lot of these companies, like, for example, Facebook has come under fire over the years for not only because of their, you know, privacy breaches, but also them working with, foreign uh tyrannical governments to you know squash free expression over there and at some point you know i, I just start wondering um you know they're uh, are they going to be held to account for the problems that they're you know helping to create or helping um uh you know to go forward in other countries uh and just you know meanwhile hiding out kind of under the uh you know the auspices of the first amendment over here yeah, and it's also this thing where a lot of these tech companies, and I see this more in media actually than the tech companies, is that they're no longer really competing in the way that, you know, media companies were competing when I was first worked at a newspaper. You know, we we wanted to like put the other newspaper out of business, right? We were we were trying to scoop them. We didn't feel I mean, we felt some kinship, I guess, that we were all journalists. But now it's it, like you feel like they're all working together against this, you know, whatever their whoever their enemy is. And that also undermines the idea that this is a, a marketplace in the way that uh, we envision marketplaces. Now, again, I'm not saying I don't really have answers for this. I, w I don't mm. want to tell uh, companies what to do, uh, you know, um, and I think you have a right not to have speech. That's also free speech, not to be, have to have people on your site saying things you don't want. But it's clearly uh, driven by a lot of, uh, you know, what I think is just an author authoritarian instinct. Yeah. And, and I think, too, uh uh, with Rogan, it's, um, I feel like there's a lot of people 
in positions of power who are very happy that so much attention is being paid uh, to Joe Rogan as opposed to the actual policymakers um, that you know created policies uh, over the past two years that had actual real world repercussions. Uh, I I joked and said that you know when is Joe Rogan going to answer for his role in gain of function research or you know when's he gonna when's he gonna answer for his policy of sending COVID positive patients into nursing homes? And it's like the more attention that we we you know we pay to him, uh, the less accountability um, you know say you know Biden or the governors. Uh, have to pay. Yeah. Or think about the CDC and how wrong they've been on how many things. I mean, that, that kind of misinformation is far more destructive to trust in government than anything Joe Rogan's doing. Um, it was weird because when I did write, I wrote this Joe Rogan piece this week, but I thought about it afterwards and I defended him in essence as a person who was interesting to listen to because he was not inhibited by the usual kind of partisan stuff and, and all that. And I defended his show as in the sense that media could learn something from him. But then I thought to myself, you know, even if they couldn't, even if he was terrible, even if he was lying, they still shouldn't be, uh, you know, there still shouldn't be this concerted effort to try to get him to, 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 to be off the air because it's not the point. The point's not that he's right or that he's being truthful or that he's smart or that he's entertaining. The, the point is that he has a right to speak and we shouldn't be trying to take people off the air, even if he was, you know, guilty of all the crap they say he was, which I don't think he is, but that's some, in somewhat, in some sense irrelevant. Yeah. And I wonder if how much of this is a, a generational thing. Um, because I'm, I'm about, I'm going to turn 40 in a couple of weeks. Um, so I, I'm like at the tail end of the millennial, I'm an old millennial, I guess, but, uh, I have older brothers, uh, who are, you know, either approaching 50 or in their fifties. So I've always had like sort of a, a kinship with like generation X and I've just sort of always been of the mind of, well, I've, uh, I, I'd rather not, how, how would I put this? Uh, I've never thought like, oh, uh, I don't like that. So therefore no one should be able to listen to that. Uh, you know, that offends me. Therefore nobody should be able to ever hear that. I've always been like, well, if it offends me, I could either say fuck you to it or, you know, turn the, you know, turn the dial. Um, and that just seems to be uh, not the way things are now. And I, I don't know, I, I don't know what's, you know, why that is. Well, I mean, I am a, you know, I'm a, I'm a very hardcore Gen Xer, you know, in many ways, I think my, <laughs> perspectives and the way I deal with the world is very Gen X-y in many ways, even though I think it's obviously simplistic to divide people up by, you know, time in, in time, like in time increments or whatever. But um, I think you're right. I mean, I never, I've never, and this isn't like I'm bragging or anything, but I've never felt the instinct to say that person shouldn't be heard or I hate a lot of people I dislike, a lot of people that say things that get me very angry. My instinct is never, man, we need to take that person off the air or, or, or you know, shut them up or fire them. You know, I mean, I just simply can't understand it. And I just when I was growing up, liberals were the ones who would say like, you know, oh, there's a, you know, a urine painting of, uh, you know, uh, a Mary or something, you know, that everyone has a right to say what they want. And now, you know, anything they don't like, they immediately their first instinct is to take it off the air. I mean, they spend an inordinate amount of time uh talking about misinformation and why people shouldn't be heard. It's incredible. I mean, it's almost like sometimes they don't even make arguments anymore. It's essentially you're either a racist or, you know, you're dangerous or you're, you're uh, driving a false narrative or whatever. And then, you know, they want to just take you off. So it's, it's, it's also bad for discourse because we're not actually debating things anymore that much. We're just debating what, you know, about who's more authoritarian or not. Yeah. And, and it's sort of like in the same way, racist has sort of been like a uh, racist has just become bad. You know, you were just bad. You don't need any more details. It's sort of a similar thing with misinformation, too, because every time I see it with uh, at least commentary on Rogan, it's always, well, he spreads misinformation. He spreads misinformation. And I have yet to see uh, any of his real critics go into detail about it. And now I'm sure that it's out there and anyone out there will will be, you know, start sharing links uh, to me. But I think uh, uh, there was a, a piece in Unheard. Uh, I think it's unheard.com uh, where a, um, a doctor went through, I guess the two conversations that Rogan had with uh, one with Robert Malone and the other Peter McCullough might've been his name, uh, just pointing out what they get right and what they get wrong. And I felt like, uh, and I felt like, Oh, that I actually feel like, and I didn't listen to the, uh, to the original uh, podcast, but I felt 
oh, I feel a lot more informed about this. And uh, thankfully, it, you know, thankfully this person was able to listen to it to be able to point out they got this right, they got this wrong, and they were able to give a, a fair assessment of it. It's a shockingly normal way to react to something. When you <laughs> agree with it, right? Like, right, right. You know, in the in the blogging days, they used to call it fisking. You know, you just go through the whole article and go like paragraph by paragraph and and make your arguments, which was it was always fun to read those things. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's how we used to interact in the world. I mean, I'm, it's not to say that two things. It's not to say that no one ever you know was smearing anyone. It happened all the time. Um, and it's not to say that every idea out there is worth entertaining, really, right? It's not to say that every everything that Rogan talks about, and I'm no expert on him again, but is you know is is smart or not you know is not completely crazy. Occasionally, there are those conversations. You're like, wow, that's really nuts. But so what? I mean, so what? Right. You know, you dismiss it. You write an article. You say that's crazy, and you move on. I mean, I again, my instinct would never be, hey, we got to get him off the air. You know. Same thing with Whoopi Goldberg. Like, I didn't want her fired. I thought what she said was stupid. But I mean, you know, should she be fired for being stupid? I mean, we wouldn't have anyone, on, you know, anyone on TV. Yeah, or in the View, uh, at least. That, on the that View, for sure. it, it's a t- it's a tough show to watch. I, I have you know I've digested it in like little you know clips here and there. I think like I guess like most men, I, I can't remember, like most men who ever you know uh, have to confront uh, the View. But um, yeah, there there is this thing about it's it's interesting the you know people calling out misinformation and then you know you have um, the uh, you know fact checkers out there the almost you know the the godly status that you know anonymous fact checkers uh, have and I, I think you wrote something recently uh, in response to um, uh, the Biden administration giving crack pipes out uh, what <laughs> what what what's going on. With uh, with the uh, crack pipe, well, I didn't even know crack was still a thing in the U.S. I, I, thought, I said the same thing to my wife. <laughs> like, is crack still a thing? I thought we were all doing, uh, you know, opioids and stuff like that now. Um, I don't know. Some stupid, you know, these programs have existed forever. And I, honestly, I don't even know. Maybe they're maybe they're helpful. I'm like, like I'm not uh, I'm not reflexively against a program that says, oh, these are drug users and we have to try to keep them safe and help them maybe get 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 out of that kind of life. But apparently, you know, the Biden administration sending out these kits that have like, you know, as far as we know, have pipes and like, I mean, what is a safety smoking kit without, without a pipe, right? I mean, if you don't have a pipe, <laughs> it's useless. So, um, but yeah, so pipe and like other cleaning implements or whatever were, was in there. But the fact check was great. It was Snopes, Snoops or Snopes, Snopes, I think, pronounce it. And it was uh, essentially the fact check was, yeah, it's true, but it's really not that important. Or like they're, the conservatives are overdoing it. or <laughs> They're pouncing. They're pouncing way too hard. Exactly. Uh, Seizing and pouncing. So, um, you know, my, 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 my contention is that fact checking is like the lowest form of journalism because it's just really columnist acting, acting as, as arbiters as acting as people can adjudicate the truth so easily. And it's just, it lends itself. Now, sometimes there are facts that are clearly wrong and people lie or make mistakes, but most often it's like context or, you know, they're stressing the wrong part of this bill. Those are perfectly fine arguments to make, but they should be made by columnists or journalists, not by someone pretending to, 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 to have some sort of deeper, uh, to be able to bore into the soul of the person speaking and have some deeper understanding of whether something is true or not. Um, as, as Joe Rogan said, I mean, he was saying uh, misinformation changes, you know, uh, for a year, we weren't allowed to say that perhaps China had been the source of this virus. And now we are allowed to say, right. So, um, I think we should be able to debate these things and talk about them and, and, and debunk them if we want. But anyway, fact checkers don't do that. I mean, sometimes they do, but for the most part, they're just political actors pretending to, uh, to dictate what, what is and is not allowable to be, you know, to be said. Yeah, I think the uh, I made a joke on Twitter uh, about it's it's such a government move that, you know, in the 80s, the CIA floods the ghetto with crack. <laughs> and then only now do they provide the pipes to smoke said crack. Um, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> to be, uh, the slow uh, wheels of government moving. Yeah. Yeah. And with the, with the safety thing, you know, I remember, uh, uh, you know, with uh, hypodermic needles, you know, obviously they didn't want... Um, them sharing the needles because of spreading, you know, AIDS and all that. I and with the crack pipe, I'm like, do they not want them sharing? Is this a, is this a COVID thing too? Is it, you know, listen, I'm, I'm not a young man anymore. Right. But I do know that you can make pipes out of almost anything if you have to. <laughs> right? So, um, 
I don't think they probably that the pipe is the big problem there. You know, it's just one of these feel good kind of like inner city liberal programs. I mean, no one I, I doubt that crack users are really very concerned about this. I just I don't think it's a super important issue. But when you lie about it, you actually make it something that it's not. You, you right. blow it up, you, you, you attract attention to it. And that's what the administration did. But this administration has been really uh, uh, ham-fisted about everything, you know, and, you know, their communication shop, I think. I mean, I think they've just done a terrible job on so many issues. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, well, I learned something about uh, about your, your history. Uh, so you're from Queens, right? Like Queens, New York? Yeah. I'm from Queens. Born. I'm from Queens as well. Uh, so, oh, where, what town? Originally Woodside. Woodside okay, that's right near the city, right? Yeah, and then uh, and then Little Neck. When I was like twelve, we moved to uh, Little Neck. Kind of right the north. Yeah. yeah, like it's um if if you if you ever read like The Great Gatsby, I think Little Neck is part. It might be it's a little different now. A little different. Yeah, than, you know, yeah. yeah, it's very Korean. Uh, it's a very oh, yeah, big yeah, yeah. Uh, Korean community now. Yeah, uh, I was born yourself? in. Uh, I was born in. Uh, I think it was Rigo Park. Okay. It's sort of on the border of so where the uh, Forest Hills, where the old the tennis stadium was, where like the Who played and all those bands in the old days, uh, where they had the U.S. Open. I think maybe that's again a venue. I haven't been there forever on Austin Street over there. But then I moved. Um, we moved around, and then I ended up out on uh, Long Island. So oh, okay. Yeah, I went. I went to high school in Long Island. I'm I'm a St. Mary's High School alum. Class Where's of that? Manhasset. Oh, that's a nice area. Yeah, yeah. I was on the uh, I was on the uh, South Shore, so Belmore. I don't know if people. Oh, okay. Know. Yeah, I used yeah. to play hockey out in uh, Belmore Merrick uh, out there. Okay. As a kid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So towards Jones Beach, if you kept going south that way, and uh, yeah, but, um, I, my apologies to everybody listening, which is boring, <laughs> boring the shit out of you, because we are so close to talking about how traffic is now in uh, you know, dri- <laughs> oh, uh, you know, driving the Long Island Expressway. It's the worst. Oh, it's the yeah. worst. Lie. Oh, forget it. But um, <laughs> but I, I, I bring it up because um, uh, your your parents uh, they they fled. Was it uh, was it the uh, communists, the Soviets. How did how did that happen? Yeah, they defected in defected. 1968 from uh, Hungary, uh, which was a Soviet bloc country. And uh, so, I think it was 68 or 69, 68 probably. So, and they uh, they ended up here and in Queens, where many many Hungarians at the time lived. You know where. When I went back, like you say, there'd be a lot of Koreans, but every every like 10 years or generationally, there's a new group of people there, you know, who are, right. uh, it's sort of a landing spot. And uh, then they uh, sort of just dissipate into the country, you know, kind of thing. And the Hungarians were, there were a decent amount of them when uh, when I was a kid in that in the area I lived in. And uh, and uh, so, yeah, they uh, they escaped, they defected. I was uh, I went to NYU and so like downtown like around Second Avenue Ninth Street around there I guess it was called Little Hungary um, and I think it was even it was probably tinier than even Little Italy is now you know it might have been like oh, yeah. two sh- two shops or, or store yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a store yeah yeah a lot of the I mean there were still probably Hungarians around there but a lot of them moved into uh, they were in Pittsburgh where like Poles moved and Czechs moved. And I think also Cleveland was, is a big spot for, for Hungarians and things like that. I mean, Hungary is not a very big country, so there's not a ton of Hungarians. And the, and the most Hungarians who came over or most of the Hungarians we knew were Jew, Jewish Hungarian, you know, Hungarian mm-hmm. Jews. So uh, not to say that they don't identify as Hungarians, but it is a different, you know, community. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I um, well, how many years ago was it? It was probably, I, I, I just started dating my wife. Um, we, we weren't married before we started dating. She was a girlfriend then. It's not like an arranged, an arranged marriage sort of thing. Um, but uh, we spent a New Year's in uh, in Budapest. And uh, it was very cold. And there are no vegetables, apparently, in uh, in Hungary, at least where we are. It was just all just goulash beef and bread. and, um, and Something to complain about, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but one thing that, one thing that I noticed, because you talk about, um, you know, um, a Jewish Hungarians, uh, leaving Hungary, you know, like I said, this wasn't too long ago. We went to, they have the, uh, the public, uh, baths there. Um, and, uh, so we go there like, oh, this is so cool because it's freezing outside, but the baths are really warm and this is fun. And, you know, we're doing the whole touristy thing. And at one point I look over 
and there's a group of uh, group of people, group of Europeans, and there was one guy who had a tattoo of a swastika with a machine gun going up through it, and nobody seemed to have a problem with that. Like none of his friends, I think they were actually like kind of drinking champagne. It was sort of like a uh, you know a Hungarian Vegas uh, sort of thing. And uh, it was only that I only when I left there did I hear about just how much pr- how many problems there they have in Hungary with anti-Semitism and uh, and all that stuff. And here I am thinking it's oh we're having like a romantic you know kind of uh, outing, and then I have a you know a guy with a fucking swastika uh, in the pool with me. Uh, so well, um, first of all, there are a lot of springs in Hungary, so they have a lot of those you know those bath bath things you know areas mm-hmm. uh, that people i'm not big on getting into like a pool with 800 people but they are very cool to look yeah. at and stuff like that i've not when i was there i didn't see anyone with a swastika but i mean obviously there is an anti-semitism problem throughout europe and hungary is part of that uh very few jews left really so it's it's interesting then countries like poland and even ukraine ukraine actually has, has more i think it's the second most jews which is only like two hundred thousand. so it's not like some big number but uh there are countries with almost no jews where anti-semitism is like through the roof like you're like you never never even met a jew and you, you know you hate them and it's just always you, you wonder why but uh yeah hungary's bad but i mean you know in my book i write about france and germany yeah. i mean it is it is dangerous you know occasionally they have to like deploy the the marines you know to like separate people so it is super dangerous and i just uh the, the nazi symbol is weird in hungary it should be because they were actually fought against the nazis or, or uh, no they were with the nazis in world war ii but um you know didn't leave you know kind of left him in a bad spot so i don't know exactly know why guys walking around but yeah i know why he's not he's he hates jews but um yeah i mean it's a beautiful city though right i mean uh sure. it's just uh, the parliament's beautiful the danube's beautiful and when i see these sort of like populist right wingers go there and talk about how beautiful it is i get what they're saying but i don't think that they're taking into account how the rest of the country is kind of garbage so yeah, and and you know, let's definitely uh, use that as a as a segue into uh, Euro Trash, which is a fantastic <laughs> title, um, and it it just it, it gave me uh, I don't know flashbacks to you know going to New York nightclubs uh, back <laughs> in my in my twenties and just seeing like these these guys with very flowery uh, 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 shirts on and and whatnot, um, or very very skinny pants. I remember the tight pants, tight pants, but I I don't know if that. I don't know if, if if you write about fashion in uh, in Euro Trash. I, I'm not an expert, so I stay away from that. But I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I yeah. Remember those uh, places? Yeah. So yeah, what what is this? Uh, you know, this facet. Well, I guess now they're they're like you said. You, you said there's sort of this fascination with um, a country like Hungary or or Poland uh, when it comes to people on on the right. But uh, in general, Europe is has always been kind of held up to this. Uh, I, I don't know as the standard for you know civilization uh. yeah i mean even 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 during world war one and post-world war one uh, american intellectuals and writers and creative people you know they just wanted us to be more like europe they looked down on americans as sort of slack-jawed yahoos and uh, that's always been the case the thing that 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 is different lately i think is that it's spread to you know not just academics but politicians and you know, pundits and people, you know, if you had someone in 19, even 70 or 80 in the 80s saying, hey, you know, I think Denmark is where the American dream really is. Like people like, you know, Bernie says here, you know, people would be like that, you know, you would lose an election. You know, people mm-hmm. uh, were still very protective and patriotic about those things. And they have a good reason to be because we are a better country than Denmark. But um now it's sort of proliferated everywhere in, in society. I mean, you know, I just see people talking about it all the time. So I thought it was worth would be worthwhile. And mostly I write about Western Europe and, and uh, the European Union. I don't really focus on, on the East that much because no one is ever like, uh, you know, we need to be more like Bulgaria. You know, you rarely <laughs> see that. Or, you know, Albanians have the best healthcare system. They talk, they're talking about Denmark and France and Germany and Britain and things like that. So that's what I concentrated on. And this Hungarian thing's kind of new anyway. But, uh, so, um, yeah, so I, I went through issue by issue and I tried to debunk the most prevalent arguments people make about healthcare, about things like that. But, you know, more than policy, I wanted to talk about the cultural aspects of how we're just different people, you know, and I call us, you know, 
slightly romanticized way, I think, where, where it was self-selected risk takers. And it's sort mm-hmm. of embedded in the DNA of an American citizen to, to take risks, to live a different sort of life. And I just don't think we could live under European systems here. I just don't think it would work. I don't think people would accept it. And uh, I just think if we wanted to scale that, you know, the, the, if we want to scale what Denmark does here, it just simply wouldn't work. It's not the kind of society we are. So that those are the two main sort of threads that go through the book. Yeah. Um, did you, uh, were you able to go there to, to do research or vacation? No, no. I mean, I've, no. I've been there a bunch of times, but no, I didn't uh, specifically do that. You know, go to, I wish I could have. I wish I had the, uh, I wish I had the funding or the, or the time yeah. to uh, do that. <laughs> I've, I've, be, I've become uh, such a uh, I'm not a, I'm not a jingoist, uh, but I, I absolutely love my country and I love the culture of it. And I do love I think I don't know if it was um, uh, your colleagues. It was either uh, Kevin uh, D. Williamson or Charlie Cook that's, that, that basically said, you know, we are a country of weirdos. We are 350, we, uh, 350 million weirdos. Well, Charlie um, would know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's uh, he's got that funny accent. We got to we got to get, get that out of him. Yeah. He's actually great. I mean, he's great. He's a friend of mine. He's super, as you know, he's like a super brain and all that. But it is interesting how uh, he speaks, you know, like he went to Oxford, which he did. But then, you know, he's into, you know, guns and, and roller coasters and all these very, very American things. And it reminds me of my own dad who came here. You know, his his an accent like Bela Lugosi, basically. <laughs> but, you know, he views himself not as Hungarian, but as American. He's going to go back to Hungary. You know, he's right. completely he loves this country. And uh, he loves the he doesn't just love it by saying, oh, you know, we're better than others. He loves it deeply in the sense that he embraces the the um, not just the ideas of America, but the culture and the freedoms of it in, a, you know, in, 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 in serious ways. And, and that's, you know, a big part of my book is about how we are great at assimilating people in that way. And Europe isn't for for structural reasons and also for policy reasons, I think. And also yeah. for because they're the way Europe. Europeans are in general, as far as you know, stereotypically speaking about their personalities, but in general, not very uh, open-minded about these kind of things. Yeah, my uh, my father is an immigrant from uh, from Argentina, and he became mm-hmm. uh, an American citizen. I, mean, I don't know if we're going on maybe fifteen years or something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I always say that my favorite foreigners are the ones that become Americans. Those are my. Uh, it's like converts, right? It's like converts yeah. to a religion are always the most, you know, the most zealous about it. So I think yeah. you have a little bit of that with Americans too. You see it with immigrants from Russia, for instance, you know, super like you know patriotic and things like that. And that's great, and it's how it should be. I think they're more appreciative, yeah. maybe, of these freedoms, you know, that they have here. Yeah, and and uh, you know, I'm speaking as somebody who's been to Europe uh, a number of times. Uh, my wife and I, we have we have family in England, so anytime we make a trip to Europe, we always stay like a a few days with them, and then and then go about uh, our travels. Um, I studied abroad in in Madrid when I was in college, which was a fantastic experience, and I've been to France and Italy. And um, uh, something I noticed, uh, I have a, a a good friend of mine who's a big traveler. And, uh, he's an attorney. And when we were in Italy, we, we happened to, he had, he got married in Italy and, uh, we were on just like this organic farm and everything that we ate was grown there. And it, it, I mean, it was just absolutely, you know, unbelievable. It was, it was an incredible experience. And, uh, you know, he would talk about like, this is the life, you know, this is how I want to live. I want a, a simple life where you just, you go out and you eat the you know best food and all that. And I had to remind him, it's like, it's like, yeah, you're able to do this because you're a very successful attorney in the United States who's able to afford to come over here and to live that lifestyle where, you know, the European, the the people that we're interacting with, they don't have that that luxury to be able to, uh, you know, to live like that. One of the one of the most amazing stats I came across, which I like triple quadruple check because I didn't want to say it because it seems so outlandish, was that. If you took the the uh, the average uh, GDP per person per worker in 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 Britain, he would be, you know, and you've made a state out of them and made them an American state. They'd be the second poorest after Mississippi in the United States per capita as far as how much money they made. Most European countries, Germany included, are in the bottom third. Countries like Hungary, uh, the average person makes ten thousand dollars less than someone in Mississippi. You know, I don't think that Americans realize how wealthy they are because they keep hearing there's all this inequality. People have all this money. They, they treated it like a zero sum, you know, pie rather than something that grows. 
but we are, I mean, other than Monaco or like these city states like Luxembourg, we are wealthier than Europeans. And, um, and I think it's even, I think you can't even quantify in many ways how much wealth you are and the freedom we have to move around, to live the kind of lives we want. It's not always about money. It's about moving out to the desert, you know, in New Mexico or living in Alaska or, you know, doing the things you want and living the kinds of lives you want. We have tremendous amount of freedom and wealth. And uh, sure, when you, you're a tourist in Europe, it seems great. I bet you a European tourist come, comes here, it seems great to him, too. He's like, you know, we should live, uh, we should live in Soho, you know, or whatever. Right, right. You, know, you can't really afford to do that if, if you live here um, for the most part. So anyway, I think that that's right what you're saying. You know, he, he can have that luxury because he's made the money here. Lawyers there don't make what lawyers make here. Doctors there do not make what doc. That's why all the doctors come here. They make a lot yeah. more here three, four times as much usually. Yeah. I, I wonder uh, when I, when I went to Europe, the only country in Europe that felt like it was um, still growing or evolving was, uh, was England and uh, in London in particular, where, you know, you would, you would uh, see like where Charles Dickens lived and then around the corner, they're building this, you know, amazing, you know, uh, modern superstructure, you know, but when I would go, when I would go to Italy, when I would go to Spain, it seemed like they were sort of locked in time where it's kind of like the country itself is a museum, you know, and, uh, I'm a huge fan of the Prado and, and seeing the masters Velasquez and all that. But when you step out of that, I don't know. I, I, th I just think for the health of a country, the health of, of a population, there needs to be some, you know, forward momentum. There needs to be some, some growth, you know? Well, it's hard to do when you're, when you're old. And I mean, not old that Europe's been around forever, but old and that your population is aging. You don't have a lot of children. You have very few children. Um, you know, a lot of that dry younger people sort of uh, propel the country forward. They open up new neighborhoods, they gentrify old ones. They have new big ideas. They do, you know, they have new technologies in Europe. Uh, I may be getting this slightly off, but something like the top 30 tech companies, only one is European Spotify. Few are Chinese and the rest are ours. I mean, they don't. And people who do have big ideas there because of lack of dynamism and lack of entrepreneurship or at least, uh, you know, policies that help entrepreneurs come here. I mean, all the big tech companies here are like immigrants or first generation, um, you know, first generation uh, citizens. So. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with what you're talking about, the sort of feeling that it's not growing. And obviously, Britain, I, I, I have a soft spot for them. I think they're the best European country, maybe other than Switzerland, you know, which is, is probably a place only the you know, wealthy can really live. But I think Britain, obviously, our ideas come from there. Our, the way we think about the world comes from there. Our work ethic, things like that, generally come from Northern Europe and especially Britain. So. Obviously, I, I, and I think we have kinship with them, though I think that, you know, obviously they have a lot of problems uh, as, you know, European problems as well. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, the whole uh, Brexit uh, situation, uh, I think, was, was pretty eye-opening as far as uh, how, uh, how people view themselves, especially in England. You have, you have those who view themselves as English. You know, and, and without even going, you know, the 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 uh, uh, you know the National Front uh, way, but you know, viewing themselves as as you know, we are we are English, we are sovereign, and then those who uh, view themselves as Europeans, as if that is a a step up from being just an Englishman. Um, and uh, I, I think I'm I'm also I'm a little um, uh, I'm a little biased. I have my, my father-in-law is uh, is English, um, but yeah, I guess even before that, I, I think I did have a. Uh, a kinship with England as compared to the, uh, you know, the other countries. Oh yeah, I, I do as well. I mean, and I, I don't know if this is right. Might be right. <laughs> if Scotland left England, left Britain, I think that uh, England would generally be a pretty conservative country in general. And, um, you know, I, I think that they were always sort of a bad fit for the EU anyway. They never took on the currency Initially, mm -hmm. when the idea was floated around, France didn't even want them as a part of it because they felt like England was too open to sort of laissez-faire ideas and trade so that they wouldn't be a good fit. And they weren't a good fit. And, uh, I mean, it was close. They, you know, things could have gone the other way. But, but the idea that one of the main, main European powers left the EU is, is, is kind of crazy because now you're talking a lot of smaller countries might start to say i mean typically they're net receivers you know from german of german cash so they stay on but you know that it could break apart i mean i don't really see that happening but i i mean it's it's still somewhat of a possibility in the next 20 30 years that that's going to happen 
Yeah, Scotland is a. I, I've never been to Scotland, but uh, as an outsider, just hearing about it, it the place doesn't make sense to me because I I associate Scotland with like really tough tough people, Braveheart, who you know, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah William Wallace, uh, headbutters people who you know you, you know watch out don't get too close because the dude's gonna you know is that the place they play that rug that like rugby lacrosse thing with the stick and tackle each other i mean they, they seem pretty tough over there right they might they might but but also like you know they have roving bands of police checking your uh your twitter feed and coming to uh uh you know to scold you if you have you know if you uh if you're if you make a thought crime, you know, it's, uh, I mean, they, they're, they're the, yeah, they're the, the uh, liberalism like was born there. You know what I mean? Adam Smith all, and all of those guys. And, and now they're just a completely left wing, not left wing. I mean, they're just a statist place and people like it. They vote for the, the, you know, they vote for, they want, they want speech police. I mean, that's what the people want, you know, the majority of people. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's strange to think of Scotland that way because our perception is definitely formed by culture and history. And it's not that these sort of uh, cowardly, you know, prostate people. Yeah. But when, uh, when it comes to uh, the European countries, so you mentioned France, uh, Germany, uh, you know, what are, you know, what are, do you think are some of the, I guess, more egregious things um, about these countries that we should definitely not, uh, you know, go down that path? Well, I worry the most, or lately I'm most worried about um, here in the sense of how we're becoming more like, so the EU was born of the idea of being like the United States. It was supposed to be a federalist idea where you had these countries that had just economic agreement essentially, or lived under one economic umbrella and had their own thing going on and so forth. But uh, they've obviously turned into having this huge uh, bureaucracy that Europe is known for. It's always been known for. um, And that controls now, you know, it's top down control all the way, you know, to to the local government and so there's like 10 layers of governance so i were in the united states that we're going to follow them in a sense in the essence in, in, in that we're going to build gigantic bureaucracies and gigantic bureaucracies are undemocratic because they don't uh, they take on a life of their own and they do what they want i'll give you a quick example you know when trump became president you hate him or love him whatever the state department decided that he was not going to govern that they were going to do whatever they wanted to and they were just simply going to ignore the presidency and uh, you or the CDC decides, hey, we're going to forgive, lo- you know, uh, uh, rent rents and or, you know, have a moratorium. There's no there was no legislation. There was no debate. There was nothing going on. They just decided. So when you have these gigantic bureaucracies, they take on a life of their own. And I worry that that's what's going to happen here as the administrative state grows, as we keep, you know, government keeps growing. Um, so that's something we've avoided. I mean, I, I feel like we have a huge government, but when you look at a European style government, we are not as government is not as doesn't touch our lives in, in as many ways and as intimately as it does there. So that's my biggest sort of over, you know, concern and just in general. Yeah. You know, for, yeah, for a, a country, uh, like ours where there's such a concern for democracy and, and losing it, there sure is a lot of power in unelected people who, you know, get named to different, uh, you know, either cabinet positions or, you know, positions on all these different, uh, you know, three-letter orgs. Um, I wonder how much concern there really is about uh, democracy. Sometimes I just think everyone wants their own dictator. They're, they're, they're typically concerned about democracy when you are trying to get your dictator <laughs> installed, which right. is good. I mean, I wish it were that way, uh, you know, in the sense that we stop each other from at, or they stop each other from acting poorly. But sometimes, you know, I think the word democracy to partisan just means stuff I want and has nothing actually to do with, uh, the, you know, the, the ideals of a democratic nation. But anyway, let's just decide. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, I guess one of the, uh, one of the things that makes us uh, as a country very weird uh, definitely comes down to uh, guns and our gun rights. And uh, was it your previous book before this where you kind of took us through, is it through the history of of the Second Amendment or uh, how how would you describe your, your and and the title of your previous book, how would you describe that? Well, it's First Freedom and the title is uh, in essence saying that you don't have any other freedom without the freedom to rebel against the government (laughs) or to like defend yourself and your property and your family. Um, so the the book, I mean, people just assumed it was this sort of polemic about guns and stuff, but it really wasn't. It was a history of its cultural history of guns in America. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it, it was the most fun I've had writing a book. Um, 
and you know, I just go through the history of of, of the rights of, of why we have these rights, but also the guns themselves, the manufacturing, how they grew, how this was the place where it mattered, how it was a big intricate part of people's lives um, from the beginning, and uh, why that is maybe the one thing. Like, so you know, Europeans will talk about you know free speech rights, even though they don't take them seriously. They'll talk about due process, even though they may not take it seriously. But they don't even pretend to care about you know <laughs> guns there, right? So that is a very unique to this country and a very few other places, like maybe Switzerland or something. Um, but it is vitally important. Uh, maybe not today in the sense of of making government. Uh, I'm not saying that we should be rebelling against the government right now. I'm just saying like we it's maybe the second amendment's not useful today, but maybe in 50 years it will be. And it certainly was in 1776, et cetera. So, um, so that was, that's basically what the book was about. Yeah. Uh, for the, for those of us, uh, for those of you who are, who are watching, you see the video, you'll see behind David is a, a number of bookcases. I'm just imagining you pull one book and then uh, the whole thing spins around. There's an armory uh, right, right <laughs> behind you. So we, we, we brought up uh, uh, Charlie uh, uh, Cook uh, earlier, who's a big fan of the AR-15. And um, I, he, I think he, he assembles, a, uh, he assembles them and all that. Or are, are you, uh, are you, are you a gunman yourself as far as, uh, you know, and I guess you don't have to answer that or keep people. No, I don't, I don't mind answering at all. I think every American should own a gun, uh, whether they use it or not. Um, I am not like Charlie or things like that, but the, just in my defense, we should go back. We are from the same place. And it's not like that place had a gun culture. I mean, it did right. it did that you you were going to get robbed or mugged, but it didn't have a gun culture for for law abiding citizens. It was very hard to get a gun. Uh, it's not like you grew up with it around you. And I've always lived in places or lived half my life in places where it was quite difficult. Or I think unconstitutionally difficult to get a, get a weapon. Um, but I am. I mean, you know, I, I am. Uh, I'm not uh, one of these. I'm not a gun nut or anything, like <laughs> an armory. But that—that's a good idea about the books. But uh, I am—I do think, uh, yeah. I mean, I have some weapons, and I think that people should own them, um, just to ha- just because they care about the Constitution and care about that right. So, yeah, it, it, Charlie, it's Charlie lives uh, in Florida, so it's no uh, secret. In Florida, you know, you can have as many guns as you want, or easy. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, it, it's it. I don't know with, with this uh, with the you know the ongoing debate um, about you know, guns and that for people who don't want you to, to be armed, they always ask, you know, why do you need, why do you need this? And, uh, as a, uh, as if that's a, a question that deserves to be answered. Yeah. And then you don't have that for anything else. Why do I need anything? I don't need, there's a lot of things I don't need. I don't need a house this, this size. I don't need two cars. I don't need a lot of stuff. I think there's a better case to say we need guns just in case, just in case someone, you know, just in case someone tries to take our other rights away. You know, oh, you're going to fight the government with your AR-15. You know? Yeah, I mean, probably I won't, but you could. Like, it happens. It happens all the time. It happened in, I mean, you just have to look at uh, the the history of uh, insurrections, and there are plenty of ways that people with small arms can uh, can cause trouble for, for, for people. Now liberals hear this. They think this is the most insane conversation that you could possibly have. But I mean, that is the the second amendment is not about hunting. They never spoke about hunting. They never spoke about sports shooting. They spoke about rebelling against or holding the government accountable and defending yourself. So I think those are the, uh, the, the reasons why we need them. I need them in case someone wants to come into my home. That's why I need it. Yeah, I, I I feel like st- too many people just don't have a um, a fair understanding of violence. I mean, forget about even you know uh, you know insurrections or you know holding a tyrannical government accountable uh, with arms, but just the reality of you know you have people who are very open to take self defense classes, you know, and they'll you know I'm gonna I'm gonna thumb you in the eye and kick you in the balls, and you know that that's what I need to do. And the reality is, well. Oftentimes, that it's not going to go down like that. Um, and if you are serious about protecting yourself, uh, the the best way to protect yourself is with a far uh, a firearm. And I wish yeah, I wish I mean, that you know. So yeah, I mean, I you know, you hear just ridiculous arguments about that. I mean, like for instance, there was this uh, hostage situation in Texas with the rabbi, and he's and they asked someone oh, asked right. him if, gun, if a gun would have helped, and he said no and stuff. But the guy literally threw a chair at the. Uh, the 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 kidnap the uh mm. the hostage taker he threw a chair does he think that a chair travels faster than a bullet would have traveled i mean if he had a gun or if someone had a gun in there 
uh, there's there's a good possibility they could have stopped that from happening. Now, listen, I'm not one of these people who says that that's always the case. I would say that right. most of the time you're not going to be able to like diffuse that kind of situation with a weapon. But you know what? Every every man and woman should have a right to to be able to if they want to. And it does happen more than people think. There are, are situations when I was in Colorado, there was one of these mega churches and a guy came in with grenades and guns and all that. And, and a woman who was maybe five one took out her Glock and put the guy down immediately. And and who knows what would have happened there. So every time one of those situations, you know, you, you don't hear about that, that as often as you do a school shooting. But those situ- those situations exist, too, and, and they matter. And I feel like that uh, stories like that really need to be amplified uh, because, you know, it ticks all the boxes. It's a, a woman standing up for herself and you got a, a Glock in the, uh, in the equation. Um, I, I said I, Glock. I do, I'm like, was it a Glock? I don't know. It sounds- <laughs> you, you were spreading misinformation, David, and right. I, I will not have that on. Uh, I'm on Spotify just so uh, everyone, uh, everyone <laughs> knows. Um, th- there does seem to be this just huge disconnect between those who, uh, you know, uh, accuse the government of being, you know, for one's uh, built on white supremacy and systemic racism, but also the citizens should not be armed in order to, uh, you know, defend themselves against the said government. Yeah, I mean, I this is another topic that uh, liberals or anti-gun people don't like, but I mean, uh, the Af- African Americans have had a, had a great have a great tradition of Second Amendment def- of the defense of the Second Amendment, where um, many civil of the early civil rights leaders were hugely uh, champion the second amendment in big ways and going even to, and they hate this one, but going even to the black Panthers, the black Panthers yeah. in the sixties made some of the best arguments for why people should arm themselves. Now, I think a lot of them were just criminals and crazy in the end, but their arguments for why uh, a, a community under assault from people in power who, who could not in any other way defend themselves should be armed was a very good one. And I just don't understand. And even how the Heller case actually started, you know, it's a DC case, but started with a woman and I forget her name right now, Shelly something I think it was, but it was a, it was an African-American woman who lived in DC who was constantly under assault in her home and she wanted to protect herself and couldn't. Um, so I think it's important to remember that. Uh, but, you know, you say stuff like that, they, they, for some reason, somehow it's, it's some kind of racist argument. I don't really get it. I want to empower people, uh, to defend their individual rights, not, uh, you know, constantly be uh, dependent on whether the police are going to show up or not, because sometimes they don't show up and uh, sometimes they can't do anything. So anyway. Yeah. Oh, and, and uh, with the, with the black Panthers, um, I, I support uh, concealed carry. I, I support open carry. Um, uh, oftentimes the people who bring up the black Panthers or will, will be um, at least anti-gun people. They'll say, ah, but you know, Reagan, He's uh, he was governor at the time. And, you know, he uh, he made it so that the Black Panthers were no longer to, allowed to, uh, you know, to open carry. And it and it's like, yeah, well, Reagan can be wrong. Um, I, I have no problem <laughs> pointing out Reagan. Can be wrong. And, and I think, as you know, as, as you as you brought up with the with the Black Panthers, like I am, you know, totally uh, cool with them uh, defending themselves, defending their neighborhoods, um, you know, keeping bad guys in check. But, you know, of course, I'm against them robbing banks. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and having, you know, unnecessary shootouts with, uh, you know, with police, I, I think, you know, hold, yeah, yeah. I back, mean, the, you know. yeah, they're conflating criminality with, with law abiding gun ownership now, just because right. some of the black Panthers are a little bit nuts, just because Angela Davis gave a gun to some black Panther guy in a courtroom who like opened fire in the judge, stuff like that. That doesn't mean that the ideas it, it's the same thing when people say, Oh, look at all these uh, pedophile priests or something, right? That doesn't mean that Catholicism itself has a problem. It means that the institution is having problems. It doesn't mean the ideas are wrong or anything, any other institution that has someone act wrongly. Like, so I not, listen, I'm no expert on the black Panthers, so I don't know what their, you know, credo was or whatever, you know, maybe it was to be violent, but all I know is that a lot of their arguments for the second amendment uh, were quite powerful and made sense to me. Um, and if they would have just stayed there and defended themselves rather than be aggressors in, 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 in violent and criminal ways, I think that that would have been fine. And it should be said that many uh, black communities in the South after the Civil War and elsewhere did have weapons and did use them for that purpose. And I believe MLK had made uh, had a had a weapon as well. I forget. But, you know, I mean, there, there was a long tradition of uh, Second Amendment advocacy in that in, in that world in the civil rights world. Yeah, uh, there, there's a group uh, called uh, Black Guns Matter, 
Um, and it's uh, uh, the head of it is uh, Maj Touré out of uh, Philadelphia. And uh, he's been doing a really great job uh, going around and educating communities, in particular urban communities, about uh, gun rights, gun ownership, and uh, offering free gun safety classes. And, and then and then I think one of the most important things are de-escalation classes, too, um, because, you know, you see you hear too many uh, stories about, you know, uh, you know, fights happening and someone pulling a gun and, you know, it, it, things going wrong where it's like de-escalation would have been the proper uh, course of action. I should say, you know, when I first moved to Colorado, I never had even held a gun. I went shooting for the first time with uh, some NRA people. I was like, the thing that surprised me the most were how incredibly uh, uh, safety conscious they were, right? And how yeah. like they they were really serious about it. You know, they weren't these yahoos that I grew up, you know, in our culture thinking that we're running around shooting in the air. I mean, they were super serious about it. I'm not saying every gun owner is like that, but there's more of that than, than you'd think, especially obviously with law-abiding gun owners. So um, they take it pretty seriously. I'm, you know, for the most part from what I've seen, I think that's, uh, you know, that's good. It just shows that they take that culture seriously. Yeah, it's a it, it is a tool, but there's a lot of gravity to to that tool yeah. and and how things can change very uh very quickly. I mean, the um, thing exists uh, to kill other people, right, or yeah. other things. So you know, they throw this at you like uh, an insult or like yeah. for some reason, but that is actually its purpose, and uh, and also to stop people from even trying to come and hurt you before ever having to pull it, just knowing that you have it. So anyway, so yeah, it's definitely yeah. A, a, tool uh, uh david before we go um are, are you working on any uh any new big projects that you have a book coming up or uh, what do you what are you up to so. um no you know uh, i'm not calling you lazy up. i am not calling you lazy <laughs> no, i'm done working yeah <laughs> uh, well books are hard books are uh sort of um a, you know they take a, a, up about two years of your life or whatever you know so they take they actually take a lot out of you or they do me at least and uh so takes me a little while to get, you know, excited again about a project. And sometimes you do, but you're like, do I want to spend two years of my life, you know, first writing a proposal, then getting it sold then writing it and selling it, which is the, you know, the, the least part I least enjoy. Um, so I don't know. The, the answer is no, not, not right now. And there's nothing really uh, that I think would make, you know, and you have to make sure that you have enough material that you can, you know, really make big arguments. So thinking about some stuff, but I don't really know, actually, you know, going day, day to day election coming up next year or this year. So that, that'll be my focus, I think. Well, it's, well, that's, that's great to hear because I actually have a book coming out this year. Oh, cool. So if you're not, if, if you're not writing one, you might be able to find the time to read I'll, one. I'll plug it. I mean, if I like it, I'm sure I will. If you, uh, yeah, if you, if you don't like it, just, just, just pretend like we never, <laughs> what, we never what, uh, may, may I ask, or is it too early to ask what it's about or sure. The, uh, the title is that joke isn't funny anymore. On the birth, on the death and rebirth of comedy. So it's ah. about, uh, yeah, it's about comedy and uh, sort of my uh, uh, comedic adventure adventures over the past, uh, you know, twenty years. In particular, the past uh, five to six, dealing with cancel culture, censorship, and what a lot of people are calling the death of comedy. But it's a hope. It's a book of hope. You know more than anything. I am. I'm. I'm. I'm not even. I'm not bullshitting you here. I'm excited about this. I'm a big fan of comedy. I like have all these books about comedians. I think you know comedians as truth tellers, like all that. That's right. very interesting to me. Even when I watch my my favorite things about like Jerry Seinfeld, that show with the coffee, is that when oh, yeah. he has another. When he has another comedian and they talk about the sort of the stru structure of a joke and why they work, I'm just really fascinated by that stuff. So uh, this is a book right down my alley. Cool. And well, you might like this too. On my wall, I have the great, where is it? Richard Pryor. Richard right Pryor. There. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy when I, you know, when we were growing, when I was growing up, I'm older than you, but, uh, uh, you know, seeing, you know, Richard Pryor on HBO or whatever and how like just all of that would get him canceled today, you know, you disappeared. Yeah. Well, yeah, sorry. My, I just, uh, me showing you Richard Pryor just messed up my whole, my whole look. My, my whole thing is, uh, here, okay. I'm going to skip. I'm going to get that going again. You're like AI um, now. All right. There you are. Well, yeah, it's definitely wild, you know, going and listening to uh, some of Richard Pryor's stuff because, well, for one, it's freaky because so much of it holds up. I mean, you're talking about like 50 year old jokes that hold up or 50 year old stories that, that hold up. And, uh, um, 
yeah, he's a for, uh, he's he's become just a uh, a god for me. He's he's just, it's it's uh, weird. Like what doesn't hold? Like he holds up. But I was like, I go him back and like listen to Lenny Bruce or whatever. I don't think it holds up at all. I don't think he's really yeah. funny at all. But like you listen to like a Catskill kind of Shecky Green or something, and it's actually quite funny still and kind of biting. So it's just weird what holds up and what doesn't. But yeah, Richard Pryor was just so amazingly fun. I was just a little kid hearing him, and I just I didn't even know what he was talking about half the time. But I just I just thought it was just great and so funny. Yeah, yeah. There seems to be like sort of a um, a back and forth, or, or like who's better, Richard Pryor or George Carlin? Carlin, or you know, kind of going back and forth. And f- uh, for me, over the years, uh, Pryor has has sort of won out because Pryor is because uh, I feel like uh, with Carlin, Carlin would do sort of like almost comedic ted talks there was almost essay writing um you yeah, know, on yeah. stage uh as opposed to prior really you know using life ex- his life stories and experiences and and you know th- there was um with with carlin there was never vulnerability there i don't think but with uh, w- with richard <laughs> i feel like there was a lot yeah you like got into his soul yeah uh, carlin you know carlin i just thought carlin was and again i'm not an expert on comedy or anything but i just thought he was kind of brave like he'd take positions you didn't expect and i think that those <laughs> unexpected positions made him more interesting than a lot of comedians today will always say what you expect them to say and you I, you know there's not a lot of carlin's around but yeah i mean those two guys yeah those guys were great i don't think like i'm sorry to keep going i know we no, have no. End, but I, like, I was listening to eddie murphy like i don't think that holds up that well though i think he's super funny when i see him now i just don't think the jokes hold up sometimes they're just kind of shock jock stuff almost in a way i don't know mm. if you, how you feel about that well, well with with eddie i always uh, i always keep it uh keep it in context in that for delirious and raw so i think it was delirious first and then raw he's still like in his early twenties. Like this hmm. guy, this guy was a, you know, uh, like sort of already in the comedic pantheon, you know, I think he went on SNL when he was like 19 or, or something mm-hmm. like that. So he was so big, so young, you know? And, right. uh, uh, so with that, I mean, he's, he's somebody where, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, if he hadn't become, you know, one of the biggest movie stars, you know, ever where that stand up would have gone, you know, where, you know, what territories he would have, uh, he would have gone into. So a lot of these guys and maybe you as well, you know, you took a lot, you know, you have to work like 10 years until, you know, it seems effortless, but it's 10 years of work of crafting of craft and stuff like that. Like Seinfeld talks about this, you know, going and, you know, for years and years before uh, getting to that level. And, and and if you're right, if Eddie Murphy was that young, he never really had the life experiences or anything to, uh, or, you know, uh, experience period to uh, really cra- hone his craft in a way that others might, like Eddie, you know, Richard Pryor probably did. Well, uh, anyway, one sorry of the to take you down this, down oh, this okay. road. No, no, no I, I, I just wanted to tell you this one thing. So one of the things, there's a problem with my, uh, with my camera, my apologies. I swear that this is my voice. There isn't a, a body double uh, on the other side of this. Um, but one of the things that, that you hear often is uh, the question of, you know, why aren't there any conservatives in comedy or why there's so few conservatives or, or, you know, even, you know, conservatives aren't funny. That's why they can't do comedy or, or, uh, or all that. And, uh, the way that I, the, the way that I look at it is I had an issue, uh, at my house where we had like a huge flood, um, in sort of in the middle of the night, it, 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 it sucked. And I called a plumber, uh, plumber came the next morning and he take he took a look at everything and I paid him $106 for him to tell me he couldn't do anything. And I was thinking I'm in the wrong business. That's the business you need to be in where you can even not do any work and still charge somebody, you know, over a hundred bucks. Whereas just getting into comedy, there is absolutely no guarantee for anything whatsoever. There's no guarantee you will, you will ever make money. You're spending more, way more money than you are taking in, especially the first few years where you're, you're, whether it's gas money time you were you were spending so much time at clubs at coffee shops anywhere where you can get up for three minutes and you know there aren't that many people rightfully so who want to take that chance whereas going into more you know a more legitimate career you know or uh, so you're saying if someone's conservative they're they're not disposed to taking that risk and going that long without a career basically or knowing that they're going to succeed I think so. I think there's a, I think there's definitely an element of that. And and I, I spoke with another uh, comedian about it. Um, 
and uh, he brought up you know sort of like a geographical thing where you know where are the you know where you know where are the hubs when it comes to comedy well you, you got boston you have new york you have la um in texas mate you know you have like a, a an austin uh you know comedy scene yeah. or, or or dallas but you have these pockets of a lot of uh comedy action happening where you know if you're not if you're not nearby or if you're not living in that city or if you're not able to get up and move to that city well you know you're kind of uh it, it's it's a much tougher uh tougher road for you so i, th I think a and lot of people yeah yeah oh, no, i don't no. maybe if you are there you essentially fall into that culture and then you're basically going to be on the left most most of the time even in austin or anywhere like that yeah it's funny that you say though about conservatives not being funny because the reason i write is because the reason i write about politics is because i was a huge fan of peter or who is uh, mm -hmm. i think one of the funniest writers there is and um even buckley you know the, the founder of national of national review was really really a funny guy um but they sort of like melded it with philosophy or ideological things and that probably most uh comedy fans would find somewhat uh boring as a certainly as, as any kind of stand-up or anything like that right mm -hmm. oh yeah when i brought it up it's it's the uh the criticism that i hear uh quite often yeah, yeah. no uh, yeah i know the, you're, yeah. you're yeah 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 because, and, and i think there and there's something too about uh you know <laughs> something as they like oh you know uh they say conservatives you know can't be funny and I'm like well shit there's a lot of closet conservatives pretending to be liberals because there's a lot of liberal comedians out there and progressive comedians who aren't funny at all <laughs> and you know it's uh uh you know but i i think you know one one of the things i mentioned in my book is uh something to be hopeful for is that i, I don't i i think now is the best time to be doing comedy because uh fewer and fewer gatekeepers you have all the different ways to get your stuff out there we, you know, we started off, uh, you know, talking a little bit about, about Joe Rogan. There's so many comedians who are able to make a living and create a fan base through podcasting alone. You know, the, right. uh, so I think it's, it's, it's an exciting time, uh, as, as scary as it is sometimes, you know? Yeah. I mean, thing, I think things are better in many ways that people don't like just in the way that you mentioned where everyone believes now that tech, big tech is holding them back and controlling speech. And don't get me wrong. I think all of that's real and a problem. But when I grew up, you know, there were three stations. And if you were lucky, maybe you had one cable station that mattered. Uh, there were only maybe five gatekeepers, but there were only five ways to express yourself, you know, right. or, or maybe the local newspaper. Now you have just so many venues to, to speak out and to get your stuff out there. Obviously, it's kind of like uh, maybe it's saturated. You know, the market, it, like you said, there's tons of comedians. It's probably in, in other ways very difficult. But at least if you're talented and you think you're going to rise above that, you know, you got a lot more ways to get out there than you did it in the past. So it's right worth remembering. Yeah. yeah. And, and also something I, I bring up all the time, uh, you know, the, the very uh, fact that I'm, you know, able to talk to you, I was able to, you know, reach out to you and, uh, somehow get slipped past your 95,000 <laughs> unread, uh, emails. Uh, I think it, it, it really is, uh, you know, uh, just a blessing of the times that we're in where, you know, you could, uh, really enjoy somebody's work and be able to, uh, to connect and, you know, possibly get them on, on your podcast. So I, I really appreciate that. Well, thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Good questions. Uh, and uh, I look forward to your book. Thank you so much for listening. And again, please order my book, That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, on the death and rebirth of comedy. Just follow the link in the description or head over to Amazon and search for Lou Perez, That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore. And please subscribe to my podcast. Leave a five-star review. Why not? Sign up for my newsletter at theluperez.com. And if you want other ways to support my work, you can join theluperez.locals.com. And of course, be sure to support my sponsors, palomaverdecbd.com. Use promo code LU for 25% off purchases over $75 and Black Organic Cold Brew, B-L-V-C-K-B-R-E-W.com. Use promo code LU for free shipping. Thank you.